You've entered the Rock is Lit Vault. Welcome to the Rock is Lit Vault, where you can find outtakes from the regular episodes and extended episodes, as well as special features, behind-the-scenes peaks, and breaking news. Join me, Christy Alexander Hallberg, for each enthralling episode, then migrate to the vault for Rock is Lit Deep Cuts. Episode 10 of Rock is Lit features Jennifer Halp's novel Come As You Are, a story set against the backdrop of the Seattle grunge scene of the early 1990s. Joining Jennifer and me on that episode to share their memories of that pivotal moment in music history, to add real-world context to Jennifer's novel, are Nabil Ayers, co-founder of Seattle's iconic record store Sonic Boom, and author of the memoir My Life in the Sunshine, about his efforts to connect with his father, the funk, soul, and jazz legend Roy Ayers. Also joining me is Charles R. Cross, author of the award-winning 2001 biography on Kurt Cobain, Heavier Than Heaven. My conversation with Charles went on much longer than I'd anticipated when we began talking, and I could only fit a fraction of it in the regular episode. What Charles had to say about Kurt Cobain was so fascinating and astute, based on his extensive research into Kurt's life and career, Charles's extraordinary access to Kurt's private papers via Kurt's widow, Courtney Love, and Charles's unique position as the editor of the Seattle music magazine, The Rocket, before, during, and after the Seattle grunge explosion of the early 90s, a position that put him in direct contact with Kurt Cobain several times, that I decided to make the whole uncut interview with Charles available here in the vault. There are short outtakes from my interviews with Jennifer and Nabil in the vault as well, which I hope you'll listen to. But for now, light a candle, drop the needle on track three of Nevermind, and come as you are to hear Charles R. Cross talk about the genius and demons of Nirvana's frontman and primary songwriter, Kurt Cobain. Thanks for joining the party, Charles. Glad to have you. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so you've read Jennifer Hopps' novel, Come As You Are, so you know what an important role Nirvana, especially Kurt Cobain, plays in the story. Tell me about your history with the band, which I'm assuming begins when you were editor of The Rocket. It does. Um, the Rocket was a magazine that was our local magazine, and um, you know, Nirvana not only read it, Kurt, Kurt read it as a kid. I was lucky enough to look through his effects uh when i was working on my mm. biography and he had it was funny to see these old tattered copies of the rocket that he'd picked up in aberdeen but uh wow. nirvana also advertised in the rocket i think three different occasions looking for a drummer so it's just an amazing idea that kurt walked into our offices before anybody knew who he was wrote a check for a few dollars and placed a classified ad he also did that later in his life when they were famous and I mistakenly cashed the check. I should have saved that signature, but there was uh, there were ethics involved. Our paper treated every every band the same. And uh, in any case, we were the local magazine. We gave them their first press and uh, covered them, obviously, up until uh, the end of Kurt's life in 1994. Yeah. I read that shortly before Nirvana released Nevermind, in 1991, a publicist for Geffen Records asked the band members how they might define the album's success, and they answered, an appearance on the cover of The Rocket. So they were clearly fans. Yeah, well, that was kind of the standard to be seen in your hometown was more important. I think the Seattle music scene at the time, the idea of fame and international success was just absurd. Um, no one imagined that was possible at that point. Uh, Nirvana obviously were in, in many ways the first and biggest to great, gain that attempt, attention, but there were ultimately five other bands from Seattle that ended up with uh, Billboard number one records. So uh, a whole scene developed around us. This is intriguing to me. Kurt's persona was that he wasn't particularly ambitious, that he was a reluctant rock star. But I, I gather that that really wasn't the reality. Yeah, Kurt had this really interesting way that he was able to play himself and, and kind of play this role that he could act like he didn't want to be famous, 
uh, even as he tried everything he possibly could to become more famous. My favorite anecdote about that is the fact that Kurt publicly bitched many times uh, in interviews that he didn't want MTV to play his videos so much, didn't want to appear on MTV, didn't like MTV. And yet he would call his manager repeatedly and say, why aren't we on MTV more? So you had these two <laughs> sides to him. And he was very skillful because he was able to become this huge star, but act as if it was all somewhat of an inconvenience to him. And that gave him a kind of credibility um, people thought they were seeing the real Kurt. In a way, they were seeing part of him. But of course, every artist that puts himself out there is somebody that does want attention. And he, he desperately wanted the attention that he ultimately got. I think what happens, unfortunately, for him is that in the end, that attention didn't fill some of the holes inside him. And in, in, in a way, he ends up even more empty after that success. Yeah, it sounds like he was a man of real contradictions, and that shows up in the lyrics of some of Nirvana's songs, like Come As You Are. It's just tons of contradictions in the lyrics to that that sort of suggest that he was a, a person really conflicted about a lot of things. Absolutely. And I think that's one reason his lyrics are powerful, because we all are conflicted. Um, every human alive has darkness and light and you know, has things we believe in ourselves and times we doubt ourselves. Kurt was one of the first rock stars to put, if you want to call it that dark side or that weak side, he openly embraced that and put that in his lyrics. And, you know, Come As You Are is a great example. The song Something In The Way is, I think, the best example where he is just desperate for human contact and attention. And so you see a vulnerability that I think people could relate to. I was such a nihilistic jerk half the time. I was so fucking sarcastic at times, and then at other times I'm so vulnerable and, and so sincere. And that's pretty much how every song comes out. It's like a mixture of both of them. What was his relationship like with his wife, Courtney Love, and their child, Francis Bean? Uh, that was very complicated. Um, uh, I, many people on the outside judged it away because I think there is a misogyny within rock and roll where male sure. rock stars get more attention, more more money, and uh, it, you know more Grammy awards. It, it's 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 still pretty ridiculous. It's it's starting to change. But in 1991, it was not that case, and a strong woman who asserted herself had one word put on her, it began with a B, and yeah. you had, no matter what you did, you were pigeonholed that way. The truth about Kurt and Courtney's relationship I began to discover when I looked through his diaries and journals. And despite her being a very powerful person, Kurt very much wanted this relationship. He adored Courtney. He loved her. Um, it, 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 she was his, his love. And there is no denying that. I, I read the notes that they sent each other early in their courtship and they, in the end, are quite romantic. Um, so, but Kurt was also a very conflicted person, a wife, a partner, a band, a child. None of those things ultimately filled the many holes that he had inside him. So his relationship with Courtney was up and down, just like his relationship with uh, humanity and, and living was up and down. Are you still in contact with them, Courtney and Francis? I am, yeah. You knew Kurt, right? You actually had, you met him. Yeah, though I I was not, and no journalist was buddies with Kurt. Um, you know, at the points I met him, I was the editor of a magazine that he wanted to be in. I was intimidated by him, and, and he likely was somewhat intimidated by me. So I uh, was not friends with him. Uh, the, the truth of being a journalist and covering the scene is you're, you're there, you're in it, everyone knows who you are. You have relationships, but your main job and your, your main relationship is with your readers. Um, yeah. If you get too close to bands, uh, at some point you can lose perspective. There were one or two journalists that got close to Kurt and kind of got caught up in a drug world. So, um, you know, that's, that, that was the price. Kurt had five friends in his life, and all of them struggled with drug problems. So anybody that says they were Kurt Cobain's friend is exaggerating, and they're less one of those five people all of whom have been through rehab at this point. Wow. Um, okay, well, speaking of that, like Zane in the novel Come As You Are, Kurt suffered from drug addiction and depression. What do you know about his history of mental illness and addiction? 
Yeah. Um, I, when I want to describe him, and when I write a biography, I don't psychoanalyze the people I write about. I just simply try to say the facts. But we're talking now after the fact, and um, I, I will put on my analyst hat, which uh, you know I, is somewhat unfair when a person is deceased. But my analyst hat tells me that the, the best way to describe Kurt to people who don't understand is just leave the addiction part off, leave everything off, and just use two words, mental illness. And it all springs from that. And I think normalizing that gives us a better sense of addiction. Um, there has been so much written about Kurt where they imply that that he loved drugs more than anything else. That wasn't true. That that drugs really were his god, and um, it all sprang out of mental illness. He suffered from depression very early as a child. He suffered from suicide thoughts long before he ever had discovered opiates, and all those things were churning in his mind. Why a person suffers from that and another doesn't, we don't understand. But I do think it helps us, and it helps other people who suffer from some of these same things to normalize some of the issues that he dealt with and to go, this was part of an illness. If it had been cancer, people wouldn't have moral judgments with it. He had suicide in his family, didn't he? He did. He'd had three suicides with close family members. They were horrific. And then add to that, one of the things I discovered reading his diaries, when Kurt was just in junior high, he walked in the woods at one point and found someone who had just recently hung themselves. So imagine the impression of that, discovering someone who just had died on a kid. I think he was 12 or something at that point. These are, these are dark thoughts. And, uh, but I think the familial history of suicide is the one thing that researchers show um, really can affect people. Suicides work in clusters. It's yeah. ultimately a, you know, it, it's a it's a human experience that crosses all norms. But when you have somebody that does it that you know, it gives this sense that maybe those taboos and those norms are aren't there, and uh, that's one of the sad realities about family histories of suicide. Kurt felt that was a choice that his people and his family could make. And his suicide attempt that resulted in his death in 1994 was one of at least a half dozen suicide attempts that he made in his life. And when one looks at drug addiction and the the amount of drugs Kurt was using in the last part of his life, I consider every one of those uses suicide. And many of Kurt's Mm. drug friends say he used so much they constantly thought he was going to die. Um, yeah. he, he, he felt like he wanted to die. It, it, there's of course the lyric in the Nirvana song, I hate myself and I want to die. Um, this was a common theme in his work. How could we have stopped this is the thing people most want to ask me, or how could we stop anyone? And the answer is proper treatment of this as a mental illness and working on all of the issues taking Kurt away from heroin in a rehab for two or three days didn't solve any of the problems that were behind there. And ultimately, he left a rehab, went and took his life just four or five days later. Hi, I'm Kurt Loder with an MTV News special report on a very sad day. Kurt Cobain, the leader of one of rock's most gifted and promising bands, Nirvana, is dead. And this is the story as we know it so far. Cobain's body was found in a house in Seattle on Friday morning. He was dead of an apparently self-inflicted shotgun blast to the head. Police found what is said to be a suicide note at the scene, but have not yet divulged its contents. Cobain, who was 27, had reportedly been missing for about six days, according to his mother. Well, he even wrote in the suicide note, since the age of seven, I've become hateful towards all humans in general. Do you know if something happened to him when he was seven or the depression maybe just manifested itself at that point? Yeah, he's citing basically the point his parents start separating in in the divorce. Uh, And uh, I will point out, though, to anyone, particularly young people, write me or read stuff on the internet or hear stuff. you can't believe what people write in their suicide notes. It, just like you can't believe when Kurt was at an interview and he said, I don't want to be on MTV. Um, those scientists that study suicide notes, the person at, at the point they are writing that note and they've made a decision to take their own life, they are not of the right mind. So it is not 
Um, I, I wouldn't take any of those words as uh, I would take those words as a man that was very, very sick in that moment and uh, struggling with reality. I always thought that he was addicted to heroin for years and years and years, but actually it was only, what, the last two or three years of his life? Yeah, Kurt's addiction to heroin would be less than three years. Um, and, you know, ironically, it, it, his, his fame is about three and a half years, but his, his consistent use of opiates really started in the beginning of 1992, and he was dead two, and, two years and three months later. So um, this, this was not the only thing in Kurt's life either. Um, heroin grabbed him and, and became kind of a higher power for him at times, but I think that it, his drug addiction can be way overstated when one looks at it, because if we look at those two and a half years, Kurt produced two albums. He toured um, America and the, and the world, played a hundred or so concerts. This was not somebody that was just high on drugs and did nothing. Sure. Um, most of his career uh, happened during that time. It was an aspect of him. We can't deny that. And I don't want to sound overly defensive, but I do think the idea of focusing on him simply as an addict um, gives a false impression of him as a human being and someone yeah. who, whatever his drug use, accomplished an incredible amount of creative work. Absolutely. I think there's, there's also the issue of his stomach issues. You know, his gastrointestinal problems, do you think that contributed to some of the depression? Or how early did that set in? That set in very early. It, it may have set in even before issues of depression. There mm. also had been a family history of uh, stomach problems. And, uh, um, you know, and back to drugs, Kurt was given Ritalin at a young age as well. There are many who think that that can also set off something that might make somebody more likely to uh, abuse drugs later in life. Uh, whether that's brain chemistry or just patterning, no one definitively knows, but there is research being done around that. So Kurt had a number of issues. He had stomach issues. He had problems with his back. He was one of the skinniest people I've ever seen in my entire life. It's It's almost impossible for people to imagine how skinny he was because usually he wore two or three sets of clothes when he was pictured. Um, and that caused him some level of shame as well. Uh, so he had many, many issues beyond drug addiction. Uh, to me, the, the truth about Kirk Cobain is it's just an absolute miracle he created what he did, given yeah. where he was, given his poverty, given some of his physical and mental challenges. It's, it's, a, it's an unbelievable miracle that he created the work that he did. I'm so happy Cause today Found my friends In my head I'm so ugly That's okay Cause so are you Pantheon Podcast listeners, Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. 
Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash Pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash Pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash Pantheon. I saw an interview with him and he was talking about how much pain he was in, physical pain he was in because of the stomach issues and, and how eating was a chore. It was, it was difficult to do. It was painful to do. He'd often throw up what he ate. So it's no wonder he was so skinny. Yeah. He'd also had, again, I'm putting my clinician's hat on, but again, when I look back on Kurt, I see that one of the big issues was he just wasn't properly diagnosed. He he had issues with chronic pain. There are ways to treat that beyond opiates. And he had probably had irritable bowel syndrome. And this is very, very common. I had a bout of it myself, ironically, when I was working on this book. And it was kind of like, do I have the curse of Kurt Cobain now coming back <laughs> oh, to oh, haunt wow. me? Um, yeah. So I certainly understand what that is. It's very, very common, can be related to stress, but also diet. Kurt did the exact opposite of what people would be recommended. Uh, he ate macaroni and cheese when uh, dairy is considered one of the main triggers for any issues of irritable bowel. Um, and opiates don't help your gastrointestinal system. If anybody listening to this is ever considering, maybe I want a career taking opiates, uh, some of the people I know who became drug addicts have repeated to me increasingly that the gastrointestinal problems from opiate use are worse than any other aspect of it. And uh, if people knew that, they might think twice before uh, beginning down that road. Um, but Kurt, Kurt really struggled with that. Um, so this affects his livelihood. It affects everything about how a person feels if their system is not working right. When do you think the artistic side of him began to show itself? Well, he was creative from a very young age. He drew art when he was in grade school. Um, so I think he found artistic expression through that initially, and he was rewarded for that. His family thought he was a great artist and made greeting cards with what he did. Music was something that came around a little bit later. He had a relative that was in a band, like kind of a local band around, and that, I think, gave Kurt a spark. But I really think he discovered music more in junior high when he saw it as a way to kind of uh, identify as an outsider. There's so much of Kurt's psyche that is about being an outsider. And once he embraced punk rock, there is a line, I can't quote it off the top of my head or accurately, but there's a line about a time he sees a punk rock band where he writes in his diary, this was what I wanted. You know, oh, it, it just yeah. came to him like, Yes, uh, I, uh, this music is my way to be weird and to be outside of things. At that time, uh, Kurt was on the football team. I, I say this what? and people don't really? even believe it, but he literally was on the football team in junior high. Uh, when I saw the, the class picture of him, I'm, I'm looking at it and going, wait a second, this is the same person? Yeah, and he's wearing crazy. polo shirts and Izod shirts. He looked entirely different. And uh, he was attempting to fit in any way he could, but, you know, he, he couldn't fit in those normal ways. Punk rock was his ticket out. When did he first discover music? When did it first become so important to him? Well, as I said, it was important for him growing up. He grew up in a family that sang along, that listened to radios. He had the uncle in the band. He loved the Beatles as a kid. Um, but I really think it was those junior high school days when kids start trading records with other people and, yeah. and, and the kids have their music that isn't their parents' music. Um, but Kurt was still rooted in butt rock. The, uh, you know, again, what Kurt said in interviews was not what happened. One of the things I discovered in researching my biography that the very first concert he ever saw was a band called Ario Speedwagon, which oh, really? if you told anybody in the mid 80s you saw Ario Speedwagon, it would be embarrassing. They were absolute butt rock 
you know, mainstream rock as you can get. Uh, the band that opened up was a band called Quarter Flash that was actually a pretty good oh, band. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, Kurt saw that band, bought the T-shirt, went to school the next day. Never, ever mentioned that any time he talked about music later in his life. I think he, he, he may have even lied and said, you know, such and such a band was his first concert. Um, but that's part of the way people create their personas. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. I know that you were one of the first people to learn of his suicide. Can you talk about that? Yeah, that was a really awful day. and uh, I'm sure. In all likelihood, Kurt died on April 5th. His body laid undiscovered for a few days, which itself is just awful to even say. Um, on the morning of April 8th, I was in my office at the Rocket, and uh, the way the story went down is uh, an electrician um, discovered Kurt's body that was working on his house, uh, called the police, but also called the local radio station, which was called KXRX, the kind of mainstream rock station, and with some alternative. And I happened to be a person that did a did a report on that KRX. So the people at the station called me immediately. And I remember to this day picking the phone up and the person from KXRX saying, a body's been discovered at Kurt's house. Could this possibly <sighs> be him? And the words out of my mouth that day were, no, it can't possibly be him. My denial is, of course, everyone's denial in hearing yeah. it. We loved Kurt. We loved his music. You know, we wanted it to be anyone but him. Do you think he would have stayed with Nirvana, or do you think he would have gone on and done something else? Uh, I wrote about this in my book, and people paid almost no attention to this, but I thought it was a, a huge headline. In my opinion, Nirvana definitely were close to being over. Kurt had talked quite a bit about breaking the band up. They had had a number of um, uh, dissensions on money and how it was split up and how many gigs they would play. I think we would have seen Nirvana for another year or two. Kurt would have gone off on his own. If I want to play it out as armchair quarterback, how what's the best way it could have been? It, it, it would have been Kurt off, did his own stuff, got better from drugs, had a more happy, normal life. And then Nirvana got back together after a break. He loved the band. He loved Nirvana. He loved those guys. He was proud of the music he created. But there was a point that he said towards the end of his life in a few conversations that he was tired of the shouting. And um, very few bands playing music of that high energy have managed to stay together for so long without breaks. So a break would have been perfect for, for Kurt to get it together. Unfortunately, that's not what happened. Uh, if we want to blame anything for Kurt's left death in, in a way, we of course have to blame himself. No other person or thing, uh, gets, gets credit for a suicide. That's always left with the person that made the choice. But I do think overworking and, and not enough attention to the, the help he needed mental and physical, um, those things played a role and, uh, in his choice. You've said that what a great rock record will do is sort of suggest another world, another possibility, a larger, greater, more romantic place than you're at. How did the Nirvana album Nevermind accomplish that? Well, I can speak for me. Um, for me, I remember to this moment, the day I first heard it, it was in the parking lot of a Tower Records in Seattle. A uh, person that worked there had gotten an ad early advanced copy. The first two seconds of Smells Like Teen Spirit were cut off. Um, but I remember popping it in the dash of my car and going like, holy crap. Um, <laughs> you know, I've gotten speeding tickets before while uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit was on the <laughs> stereo. Um, the power of that record is that it, it, it captures an angst and an aggression that most people are afraid to admit is in them, but we all have it. And uh, it, there's also a celebration in that. It is a celebratory record. Um, it, it, it's a record that touched me in so many ways and still does. There are a lot of records from that era that I listen to now and I just don't feel the same. But I got to say, anytime I hear that record, it's a song I, I, I never cut forward from it. I'm happy if I hear it on the radio as opposed to going like, oh no, 
not another, and I don't want to slam any bands, but there, <laughs> there are some bands from Seattle whose music sounds more repetitive to me over time and over the decades. I think one of the gifts of Nirvana is those records were produced in a way that they have a timelessness. Um, in Utero is their, their best record, I would argue. Um, but so much of that is the songwriting of Kurt Cobain. He, he just simply was one of the world's best songwriters ever. Yeah. Um, uh, that's not an exaggeration to say. There are people who don't like Nirvana, don't like Kurt Cobain, and I always encourage them to listen to the MTV Unplugged or to oh, listen to amazing. a different, listen to Tori Amos doing Smells Like Teen Spirit yeah. and tell me if that's a great song or not. Um, yeah, uh, his songs and his craft live on long after his personality. What are some of the Seattle bands that he most respected? Uh, Kurt respected uh, the Melvins, which he grew up with. Um, he loved uh, almost everything on Sub Pop, Mud Honey, mm-hmm. um, uh, Tad, who he toured with, uh, uh, Soundgarden. Um, there are a number of other bands that didn't become as famous that Kurt also respected and played on gigs with. Those would include bands like Room Nine. Love Battery, Skin Yard. Uh, these, the Kurt loved this music. I, I had the the benefit of looking through his record collection, and oh also gosh. at one point I had the chance to look through from earlier in Kurt's life his cassette collection. So Kurt grew up in an age just like as I did in an analog age where you couldn't go to YouTube or TikTok and find a song. He grew up in an age where if you heard a song on the radio, you recorded on a cassette player and you made a mixtape. And I had the benefit to look through the mixtapes that he made, several dozen of them. And it gave a diverse sign in the middle of Black Flag or the Melvins or, you know, the Meat Puppets, more punkish bands. He would have a Nancy Sinatra song, a Lee Hazelwood song, a Tennessee Ernie Ford, a Johnny Cash um, weird blues songs by Lead Belly, which of course he ends up covering later, but also a ton of the kind of pop crap that I grew up on. Uh, you know, <laughs> Gary Puckett in the Union Gap, uh, <laughs> right. you know, Tommy James and the Shondells, which, you know, was one of the first records I bought. Um, this stuff and also the stuff that you see on the Nuggets collections of uh, Have a Nice Day from the 70s. I, the, you know, that's uh, Love Goes Where My Rosemary Grows. Yes. These are the songs I grew up on and loved, and Kurt did as well. Um, his musical imprint was very diverse, but he never mentioned those pop bands if somebody asked him who he liked. He, he stuck with the punk, but he listened to a lot of that mainstream band. One of my favorite stories of all time with Kurt was a time that um, in the, in the eighties, when a friend, uh, was around, Kurt said, I found this great new record. I want you to listen to come over and listen to it. And the guy went over and Kurt put on the knack, the knack self-tired record with my Sharona. Now (laughs) I was already a magazine editor. I liked my Sharona. I love the knack. I love that record, but it was too mainstream for someone to, you didn't want to tell anybody you loved it. (laughs) <laughs> and the guy just kept looking at Kurt going like, is he, is he kidding me? Is he joking with this? He really likes this band. And he's like, I just discovered this great new band. Have you heard of him? The Knack. Wow. And you're like, duh. You know, they, this was a couple of years after they'd had a hit. But Kurt loved the cars. He loved a lot of that mainstream stuff as well. And that influenced his music. In the end, I think his gift was able to take some of that mainstream music, whether it's Cheap Trick, The Cars and mix it with the Pixies and mix it with a little bit of Black Flag and create his own brew out of those influences. Yes. And he was a big Zeppelin fan too, wasn't he? He was, as am I, of course. The highlight of my entire life, meeting Jimmy Page and then being able to talk to him about Nirvana and Kurt and some other things. What did he uh, think of Nirvana? uh, He loved Nirvana. I mean, you know, um, every rock star I've ever 
Matt that was visiting Seattle. There are two people they want to talk about, and there are two people I happen to write biographies of, and that is Jimi Hendrix and Kurt Cobain. And then I will also throw in the ladies in heart as well. Yes. Also have a huge swath of input that they have made and continue to make in music. But but uh, Nirvana's music was well respected by everybody. Kurt Cobain was just genuinely one of those freakish talents that only come along once in every great while. Kurt Cobain and the Seattle scene tapped into a vast chunk of American white youth who are depressed, bummed out, and here's a guy who looks like them, comes from them, sings for them, about them, and to them, and all of a sudden, you got a Nirvana shirt on. Punk came up, you know what it was, in England. That was the last time anything really important happened in England, or came from England to affect anybody. You know what happened is that Punk said, we're fed up of Pink Floyd, Jethro Tull, Led Zeppelin. The the sort of skeleton of the Beatles, let's have some music from the street. And what's happened in America in 1991-90 is that you finally got your own punk. I've met people that don't like Nirvana, you know, they, they, they associate it with the personality, but I've never met a musician who doesn't respect the craft that Nirvana brought yeah. to songwriting and to riffs and to melody. Those were the true gifts, and and I think everybody sees that that knows music. Yeah, I was I was twenty four when he died, and I remember it well. It was, it, you know, it it was shocking, but it wasn't surprising because there'd been all that press about the incident in Rome, and that hadn't been that long before he actually killed himself, and and everybody knew that he had he had a drug problem, he had he had issues. So, but I remember where I was. It was um. It was an important day for me. It's a generational defining point. Yep. And there were people who didn't care or, you know, screw him or drug addict dies, so big deal. But, you know, uh, not to steal a Don McLean lyric, which I'm going to do, <laughs> in, in a way for Seattle, it was the day the music died. Yes. Um, and the saddest part of Kurt's death for people who love music was that uh, we didn't get any more music out of yeah. him. And I know that's selfish to say. Uh, the saddest point for, of course, people who loved him and cared about him was that his life didn't continue and the people that he, were, he was important to lost him. But losing him as a songwriter can't be underestimated. And uh, you know that was one of the tragedies of the day. And Seattle had a number of other bands that continued on and continue on till today. But it did just deflate everything. Mm-hmm. It it just it it we we felt defeated, and uh, it is a mark on Seattle. I, I've actually done a lot of research on this because I get asked this a lot, and people go, well, "What's so bad about Seattle? Why do you guys have so many drug overdoses?" And the truth was, the year Kurt Cobain died, Seattle was twelfth behind other major metropolitan cities like Washington D.C., New York, L.A., San Francisco. All those cities had more drug overdoses than we did. We just, out of happenstance, had a few famous rock stars die. Yeah. And it was, it, it was as if people imagined there was something to do with Seattle. The, the sad story of drug addiction is that this is not about one place. It's not about one gender or race or world. It, it is ultimately a human struggle at this point, and it, it's certainly an epidemic. The saddest thing I could tell you today would be that the drug overdoses in America this year are three times what they were the year Kurt died. Oh, wow. So if we felt there was already an epidemic going on in 1994, uh, more people are dying of drug overdoses now by threefold. And uh, this is a national health crisis. And we'll only find solutions if we approach it the way we the, the way we responded to the coronavirus. That that's the kind of level of response in my mind that we should apply because so many things in our society are messed up because of drug addiction. Charles, you've also said that Kurt was the last rock star. What did you mean by that? 
Well, of course, saying something like that, I'm trying to be controversial in a way. Um, there, I've had a bunch of people argue with me. I, it, it was it was more like I wrote a magazine article and had, that was the headline, and people went crazy on it. But that's that's part of journalism. Um, but I do believe, in a way, he was the last of a of a generation. There are certainly many rock stars that have happened since, but music and culture itself has changed. With the, with the internet culture, with people being able to select, if someone's a fan of metal music, they may be a fan of Swedish metal, death metal, buzz metal. You know, they, they, there's so many ways that people can be in these small groups that the impact of any rock star to affect all of culture has been minimized since 1994. Um, so Kurt's music is Nevermind was one of those last records. For years, it used to be if you went over to someone's house, they had the Eagles' greatest hits. There was no way you looked through any record collection, didn't see the Eagles' greatest hits. You always saw Born in the USA. You always saw uh, Sgt. Pepper. You, you, know, uh, you always saw Exile on Main Street. These were in every record collection I ever pawed through in my life. Nirvana's Nevermind was a record that was everyone had that record. And after that, there was not a record. There have been records that sold a lot. But if you look at Taylor Swift, for example, a huge commercial star, so many people you're going to see aren't going to have one of her records. And I think the world has shifted that that there are not rock stars like that. You know, Chris Martin of Coldplay, yeah, he's a big rock star, but there's many people that hate him, is like him, if not more. And some of it is that the internet has allowed tribes of music fans to self-select. In the Nevermind era, you didn't have a Facebook to go on and complain about or to yell and say, hey, I just heard this song. Nirvana could never have happened in the Facebook era. And the reason is Nirvana exploded in a matter of two or three months. But now bands explode in the matter of two or three days. They don't have the time to build or develop the craftsmanship or develop a true unique voice before they are immediately embraced. Nirvana did it the old fashioned way. And for that reason, I think maybe they are the last great rock band. I hope somebody else comes along. I'm glad to take my words back and go, hey, <laughs> Stevie Blossoms is the next great rock star. I was wrong. But so far for me, I have not been wowed by another rock star in that manner that had the personality, the charisma, and the craft. All of those things together, I've not seen that yet myself. I hope to this weekend. I'm going to a festival. I'm going to see a few bands I haven't seen. Maybe I'll come back and go, nope, I was wrong, but I kind of doubt it. I was just going to say, I really rather doubt it. So it sounds like the internet killed the radio star more than video. In a way, I think it did. It, it didn't kill stars. There are artists who are massively played and uh, have hits and make money off Spotify, though most don't. But uh, the internet made it so the idea of something building in secret, I mean, it is to that our item, that idea that Malcolm Gladwell put forward and other social scientists have mentioned the 10,000 hours that the Beatles did in Hamburg. And Nirvana did 10,000 hours of practice and rehearsals and small clubs. Some of the things I saw building up. Uh, they weren't great at the start. They were not the best band in Seattle in 1988, 1989, and 1990. They were the best band in Seattle in 1991. And um, so much of their history becomes apocryphal, where people go, I saw Nirvana in 1988, and they were incredible. Why didn't you guys embrace them right away? Well, go back and listen to Bleach. <laughs> Kurt had not found his voice yet. It took a while, but that's that's the apprentice idea of music, and the internet takes that away to some degree. Were you at that OK Hotel performance when they did? I was not. There is a long story about why I wasn't there that may may or may not appear in my memoir. Mm. But at that point, no one knew that that was going to be the legendary show, and no one knew. It is important when people list talk about that the OK Hotel show, which you know three hundred and twenty people saw or something, 
Um, the crowd does not go crazy when Smells Like Teen Spirit is played. There's much more applause for other songs. So it took a while. And in a way, that song was better on the radio than it was in concert. Okay. I mean, I saw Nirvana a number of times in concert play that song. Of course, people went crazy and there was slam dancing. But there's something about that song. Kurt's greatest gift is that when he sang, you felt like he was singing to you. There's an individualism to his voice that reaches out and grabs people. And in a way, in a bizarre way, a record, a CD, or the radio does it a little better than even being in concert. Um, There are other songs in rock that are better in a concert setting. There are even some Nirvana songs that, that were better in concert than they were. But Smells Like Teen Spirit is one that I believe the personal relationship of you to the singer it works better when you're not around 25,000 people. Well, I'm saying the video of that song, not the whole concert, but just the performance of that song. And I, I thought the crowd was really responsive. They were crowd surfing and they were, they were animated and, and Kurt was singing and playing guitar like a man possessed. It was, I thought it was pretty special. Well, uh, you, I, I will fight back on that and say <laughs> the challenge is to listen to the entire tape of the concert and go, how does this compare against lithium, which people went really crazy for, and which at one point was considered to be the single for the album. So uh, okay. I'm not saying people didn't like it when they heard it. I'm just saying it wasn't, people did not walk away and go, oh my God, the song. The song took off when it hit radio in August of 1991. That's when it became something. The video really didn't debut until later and become most people's experience of Smells Like Teen Spirit was that they initially heard it on the radio. I heard it on a cassette in a Tower Records parking lot in Mm. August of 1991. And I, at that point, was like, holy, this is something. My first experience with it was the video. So it's impossible for me to separate the song from the video when I hear it, wherever I hear it. I always flash back to the video. Now, what did he think of the Weird Al Yankovic parody? Oh, he loved it. He loved Weird Al. Was, oh, was, cool. Would love the fact that, that he was being uh, parodied in that way. No, absolutely. Uh, that was a highlight for Kurt. Um, Kurt himself, though, even though he had a lot to do with the video, he did not like the video. And if he were with us here, it's always really hard and it's maybe disrespectful to even try to talk about what would a dead person think now? And can I, as a biographer, speak for him? But I'm going to jump in the water on that one and say he would be quite unhappy to hear stories like yourself and, of course, many other people who said, I've first heard this song from the video. That Mm. was not his intention. And that's one reason he intentionally in the next video made his own image be blurred. He was shot through water. He didn't want he didn't want people to be focused on his face, his looks. Yeah. Um, so Nirvana videos after that were much less Kurt's face. Um, but nobody thought Smells Like Teen Spirit was gonna be huge. I mean, I had the personal connection of being at the record release party for Nevermind and actually having a conversation with Kurt and the the people in Sub Pop about how much the record was going to sell. I predicted 100,000, and, and no one else thought that was even possible. Um, so again, the stories become apocryphal. Everyone thinks, oh my God, we knew this was going to be huge. I think the story that tells you the sort of lie of the idea of Nevermind being something that everyone predicted, the, the clearest indication of that is Geffen Records. They printed 40,000 of Nevermind. Wow. If they thought it was going to be huge, they would have made a heck of a lot more. But that was the perception of what the label did. Those 40,000 did sell out within the month, but it, it became something it wasn't on the day it was released. his legacy is 
I think his legacy ultimately is the songs, the craft. Uh, I wrote uh, a little bit in a piece a while back about this. This is almost unbelievable, but Kurt is one of the icons of rap and hip hop music. He is cited in over three dozen rap or hip hop songs, um, just like Muhammad Ali would be. There'll be lines about Kurt Cobain, um, and he he's become. Uh, as, there's both Kurt as a personality, and so that's a little bit what I'm talking about. the The Nirvana T-shirt has been Target's bestseller for for uh, several decades now. Um, mm. That image and that idea of Nirvana lives on. But beyond that, his ultimate legacy is the craft he created with those yeah. songs. And then, of course, I, I can't not say that his legacy is his daughter. Um, you know, th- this is also part of Kurt's legacy is his yeah. wife who lives on and still creates music and has her own memoir coming out here very soon and oh, uh, okay. tells a bunch of stories about that. Fuck you all, this is the last song of the evening. This was written by my favorite performer. My girl, my girl, don't lie to me. Tell me when did you sleep last night? In the plans, in the plans, where the sun don't ever shine. I would shiver. Kurt, we miss you. I miss you. Thanks for hanging out in the Rock is Lit vault. Check out more Rock is Lit episodes and be on the lookout for more bonus material here in the vault. Until next time, keep rocking and reading and getting lit. Rock is Lit. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.